I'm sure you come to this study of the tabernacle figuring everything out. It's like, oh, easy peasy, right? Not exactly. So let's open up with a pop quiz. I want to hear from you. Okay, with the first slide, what do these symbols represent? Christmas, right. What's the next one? What do these symbols represent? Texas. And then one more. What do these symbols represent? School. Absolutely. Oh, you are so smart. Don't you feel good about yourselves? Yeah. If it were a school, I'd give you all a blue ribbon for participating. (laughs) And then you would throw it on the ground before you left the room. Okay, I have one more slide. What do these symbols represent? They're all from the tabernacle. They all represent Jesus. That's one of the things that I love about the tabernacle is that every single detail in this these three chapters is about Jesus. Let's go dig into that. See, everything um, about the tabernacle came true in John 1.14, and the word, that's Jesus, became flesh and tabernacled among us. That's the actual Greek word for it. There are three meanings to the tabernacle. First of all, It's a visible illustration of heaven where God dwells. The reason God had um, Moses and his cohorts build all the stuff in the tabernacle is that all those pieces of the, the furnishings and all the elements are reflections of what is in heaven in God's throne room. Secondly, the tabernacle is a type of or a form of Christ who is the meeting place between God and man. And then finally, it's a picture of Christ in the church, the communion of Jesus with his bride, which would be us. There is more space devoted to the tabernacle than any other single object or subject in the entire Bible. It, the Holy Spirit decided to take two chapters to tell us about the creation of the world and ten chapters to tell us about the tabernacle. What does that tell you about the tabernacle? That it's important? I think so. The tabernacle was the place where God met man. Christ is the meeting place between God and man now. There's only one mediator, Paul writes in 1 Timothy, between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Another thing about the tabernacle is that it only had one door. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus is the only way to God in the same way that there was only one door into the place where men met with God. The tabernacle also hints at the universal lordship of Christ. Every kingdom in nature contributed its share toward the building and the enriching of the tabernacle. The mineral kingdom supplied the metals and the precious stones. The vegetable kingdom gave the wood and the linen and the oil and the spices. And the animal kingdom furnished the skins and the goat's hair for the curtains in addition, of course, to the many sacrifices that went on day after day after day. But as we look at the 
is the the tabernacle in its totality. It all reflects the nature of God, the symmetry that is inherent in God's character, the orderliness of the way he thinks and the way he does life, the pure wood, the gold overlay, the solid gold, all those things added to the symbolism of the light, the table, the veil, the cherubim, all of it was a revelation from God. All of it reflected the reality of heaven. When we study the tabernacle, we're going to get um, a better idea of what is waiting for us in heaven. When we get there, you're going to go, oh, this looks familiar. We did that at Bible study in 2015, 2016. I remember this. We're all going to do that. I just love that. Uh, Lord, I'd be good if that was today, by the way. I'm always voting for Jesus to come back. I mean, before the end of this sentence, I'd be pleased with that. All right, let's go in order. Let's look at the Ark of the Covenant. Um, whatever you remember from Raiders of the Lost Ark, just know that that was Hollywood. Now let's talk about reality in the Bible. The Ark was a symbol that God was present among his people that his covenant blessing was resting on them. The ark was the most sacred and glorious instrument of the tabernacle. It typified Jesus. Now, there were two other arks in the Bible up to this point. Do you remember what they are? What's the first ark in Genesis? Noah, that's it, where he and his family found shelter from the flood. Where was the other ark? Beginning of Exodus. Moses, that's right. It was the basket was actually the the word is actually ark, and the baby Moses was protected from the evil of the Pharaoh. So it's about protection and provision of safety. Well, the ark of the covenant is is the ultimate ark, and it points to Jesus. It was made of two materials: acacia wood um, that never rots. It's very strong and sturdy, and gold. It was overlaid with gold. Nobody ever saw the wood after it was um, overlaid with gold. But these two materials that the ark was made from symbolize the, the, the two natures of Christ, that he was 100% God, that's the gold, and 100% man, that's the wood. Because, of course, wood is, a, is a, um, an earthly uh, substance that grows from the ground, gold, because it's shiny and beautiful and full of light, reflects the glory of heaven. Every time we see any item in the tabernacle that was the, the base of the acacia wood and overlaid with gold, we are reminded that the, the coming Messiah would be both God and man put together. The ark contained the tablets that God wrote out the second time for Moses up on the mountain. It also contained Aaron's rod that budded. Now, if that does not sound familiar, because we haven't gotten there yet, it's okay. (laughs) And then some manna. Those three things were kept in the ark kind of as a moving museum, as a remembrance of God's miraculous provision in the wilderness. Hebrews 9.5 tells us that it was a golden pot that held the manna. It was the amount of manna that one man would eat per day. So it was, it was manna 
about one man. It was contained in gold. That's an image of Jesus. That, of course, he, being God, being that gold, contained the bread of life, which is what he said he was. The manna points to Jesus. You remember we, when we covered that. Since Jesus is the bread from heaven, um, manna is the grace of a good, good father meeting the needs of his people. The little detail in Hebrews that tells us it was kept in a gold pot reminds us that Jesus is a man, but he's now glorified. He's seated at the right hand of the Father, and he's full of glory. He's, just, he's not having to, to hold it back anymore. Then we have the mercy seat. The mercy seat was a solid sheet or slab of pure gold. Though it was a separate and distinct article in itself, it formed the lid of the ark, which is a good thing. Because if there were no lid, then the tablets, which um, summed up the law, would be on display, and, and that would be a sign of judgment, because we needed to be protected from the power of God's righteous commands that we consistently fail on. There was only one other piece of furniture in the tabernacle that was made solely of gold, and that was the candlestick which was smaller in size and weight. And so the mercy seat was worth more than anything else in the tabernacle. It was the most valuable of all the holy vessels. This tells us something about the preciousness in the sight of God that the mercy seat foreshadowed, which would be Jesus. See, another word, a Bible word for mercy seat is propitiation. They're actually used, they, they mean the same thing in the Hebrew and in the Greek. To propitiate, man, doesn't that sound like a big Bible word? Uh, it means to appease, to placate, to make satisfaction. When somebody does something wrong, really wrong, really hurtful, our souls cry out, hey, somebody's got to pay for that. And the reason we feel like that is because we are made in the image of a just God, a righteous God, who hates when things are wrong when they should be right. Jesus made things right because his response to somebody's got to pay for this was to say, I will. I will pay with my life. His father's justice was satisfied. Jesus made things right. He is the mercy seat. He is the place, not only where God meets man, but where things are made right. In the tabernacle, there was a table, but there was no chair for Aaron or any other high priest because their work was never finished. It needed to constantly be repeated, pointing forward to the fact that one great sacrifice which would provide rest and satisfaction, still lay ahead. But there was one seat, the mercy seat, reserved not for man, but for Yahweh. He sat between the cherubim. This mercy seat, resting on the ark, foreshadowed the grand truth that God would find his rest in that perfect work, which his... Son, who would become incarnate, who would leave heaven, 
wrap himself in human flesh, live as a perfect, sinless human being, and then die on the cross for our sins and come back to life. God was looking forward. The Father was looking forward to that time when the Son would do his work and he would be satisfied. So the mercy seat was God's throne on earth. Now, he had a throne in heaven, but he also had one on earth. How does a holy God dwell in the midst of sinful people? On the grounds of accepted sacrifice. That's the only way. Because a holy God would not be able to look at sin and go, um, okay, we're just going to do away with it. Poof, forgiven, done. That's not the way it works. If anyone has really wounded you, has sinned against you, the last thing that you would do is go, oh, it was nothing. It's just fine. We're just going to go, poof, it goes away. No, because the righteousness and the justice that, that was planted in you because you're made in the image of God says, no, it's, it's more than just saying, oh, it's done. Something had to be sacrificed. Something had to die. So God's throne on earth was sprinkled with blood. The high priest would bring it into the Holy of Holies, that place where the ark lived, was. Um, Once a year on the Day of Atonement, he would dip his finger in the blood of the sacrifice, and seven times he would splatter it on the mercy seat. And when God saw that splattered blood, he said, a sacrifice has been made. My justice has been um, addressed. I will be able to meet with people. The mercy seat was the place where Yahweh met the sinner through his representative, which was the high priest. Today, Jesus is the meeting place between God and his people because he is the representative. He meets with us not in judgment, but in grace. The mercy seat was also the place of communion between God and Moses. In Exodus um, 25:22, God says to Moses, there I will meet with you. And let me, let me point out, he doesn't say this to anybody else. Moses is the only one that he met at the mercy seat. All the other people that God would meet with was out in the, at the altar. Gee, Moses was the only one who said, where God said to him, I will meet you at the mercy seat. He says, I, there I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which, you know, these two angels have their wings outstretched toward each other, which are upon the ark of the testimony, I will speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment for the sons of Israel. This points forward to our great privileges of, as Christians to speak to God and hear him speak to us, mainly through his word. He says to us, as he said to Moses, I will meet with you. And Jesus is the place where I will meet with you. Now, we can not only meet with God, we can come boldly into the throne of grace, Hebrews tells us. That is amazing. You know, the Old Testament saints would never have dreamed of striding boldly into the throne of grace. They just couldn't imagine that because there was so much fear and trembling and trepidation and I have to come with the bloody sacrifice. And Jesus says, I did the bloody sacrifice on your behalf so you don't have to. Come on in. Come on into the, um, the throne room of God. Then we have the table of showbread. 
the table points to Christ for several reasons. First of all, the term showbread in the Hebrew literally means bread of faces. It means that the bread was always before the face of God. And that points to the bread being acceptable to him. And of course, because everything points to Jesus. Do you remember what the father said to Jesus at his baptism about Jesus being acceptable to him? You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. I have to tell you, that is one of my favorite sentences in the Bible. I have two sons. They are beloved. I am well pleased with both of them. As a matter of fact, um, for years, when I would introduce either of our sons to someone, I would introduce them, hi, this is Kurt, this is Kevin, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And you know, not once did they ever roll their eyes or go, mom, that is so cheesy. They, they knew it was holy. So several years ago, when my second son, Kevin, was um, raising money for a missions trip when he was still in Denton, he, sent, he wrote a, a support letter, and he sent it to us. He wrote a personal note on each letter that he sent out. And at the bottom of ours, which I put in our refrigerator, he signed it, Kevin, your beloved son in whom you are well pleased. <laughs> it's like, that's true. Okay. Um, the table of showbread points us to the bread, which points us to Jesus. Who said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Jesus claimed to be the bread. That's why bread is so important in the, in the Old Testament. There were 12 cakes of bread, which corresponds to the 12 tribes of Israel. What's very interesting about these loaves of bread, which we see in, in looking at the Hebrew, is that they were perforated. They had been pricked with something sharp. It's pointing to Jesus, the bread of life, who was pierced for us, first by the crown of thorns and then by the spear in his side. And the bread was also baked, which points forward to the fact that Jesus, as he was on the cross, endured the fires of God's holy wrath as he was the bread of life. Then there's the lampstand. It was made of pure gold, which speaks of the glory and the divinity of Christ. But it wasn't just pure gold. It was hammered gold. I love that little detail because it's pointing forward to the fact that Jesus would be beaten and scourged and whipped for us. That's what he was willing to endure. The lampstand provided light. In the, um, in the tabernacle, in the holy place, the holy of holies, um, there was a, we're going to get there in a minute, but there, there were curtains that made a ceiling for these, these two rooms. It was very, very dark. I mean, there were four layers of coverings. It was very dark. The la- lampstand provided all the light. It was an extremely important part of the tabernacle. It also contained, um, oh, the lampstand provided light, and, of course, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. 
you know, it's just so amazing how easy it is to connect the dots between the elements of the tabernacle and the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, um, you see on the picture of the lampstand that it contained the three stages of life, bud, flower, and fruit. Part of the, the point of that is that the Lord is providing light and grace for every aspect of our lives at every point along our journey. Then there's the curtains. So I, of course, I did a Google search for these images, and I could not find a single image that represented what I think it looked like because um, in describing how they were to be made, it started off by talking about the white linen And then it talked about the three colors to embroider it. Whereas with the veil, it starts with the colors and then mentions that it was, there was white linen. I have a feeling that the, these ceiling curtains were mainly white and then had beautiful embroidery with blue, purple, and red. Um, but nobody seemed to get that. So, uh, I gave you this, I, I, I'm providing this picture just so you get an idea that there was a ceiling that was made of a beautiful, especially um, skilled embroidery masterpiece that, they would, that only the, the, the priests could see. Let, let me back up to the, the colors. The, the white linen refers to the purity of Christ. White is always a reference to purity. Blue is the color of the sky, and it reminds us that Jesus came from heaven. Purple is the color of royalty, and that we are reminded that Jesus was the king of kings and lord of lords. He came from the royal line of, line of David. At his birth, the Magi sought the king of the Jews. When, his preaching, when, when he was preaching, his message was, the gospel of the kingdom is, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Kingdom. Kingdoms have kings. He was the king. So um, that purple referred to Jesus' royalty. And then red, of course, is the color of blood that represented his sufferings and particularly his, his sacrifice because he would, he would pour out his blood for us. Only the priests had access to the holy place. Only the priests could see the beautiful ceiling curtains. Only those with access to God could enjoy them. Joe Israelite, outside in the camp, could not see these beautiful curtains. They just saw the ugly badger skin outside wrappings of what covered these beautiful, gorgeous curtains. Part of the glory of being a Christian is that God has given us the privilege of being part of a royal priesthood. We get to be in the, in the priestly family. We get to see the curtains, the beauty of Jesus. We get to see the glories of God as a member of the priestly family, the royal family. You know, that's one of those things that is, you know, I, I mention it, but we could probably just spend hours meditating on the incredible privilege that, that it is to be invited to be part of a royal priesthood, which means, y'all, 
I am a princess priest. There you go. I like that. I should have brought my tiara. Okay, next time. All right, then there's the boards, which created the walls uh, around the, um, the holy place and the holy of holies. The, the, bo- the bars which secured the boards to each other were also wood overlaid with gold that points to the unity of the God-man, Jesus. The, and these boards were also wood covered with gold. They supported the curtains and the coverings. Now they, so they had these boards, plus the gold bars, plus silver sockets down at the bottom that held them in place. They supported, um, they were the massive framework that supported the weight of everything. The tabernacle depended on the boards for structure and security. Jesus does that for us. He is the massive framework that supports everything. Colossians tells us that in him all things hold together. The boards fit into, the word in the scripture is tenons, which we have no idea what that means. It literally means hands, and it's too bad that the translators didn't decide to make it say hands because each board had basically the shape of two hands that would hold up the boards, and they were connected to these silver sockets. And it's representative of the Father keeping his hands on Jesus and supporting him and holding him up during his sojourn on earth. What The message behind the little t- hands at the bottom of the boards is the Father saying to the Son, I've got you. Rely on me. I've got you. We see suggestions of of this in scripture and other places in psalm 80 there's a verse that says let your hand be upon the man of your right hand upon the son of man whom you made strong for yourself let your hand be on your son and then one of the last things jesus said on the cross father into your hands i commit my spirit so it's not just a matter of, of there was this little piece that the boards fit into. It was representative of the Father's hands holding Jesus up. Now let's talk about the veil. Oh, my goodness. This is so incredibly beautiful and powerful. The way to God was blocked between the holy place and the holy of holies, or the most holy place, there was a veil. And only the high priest was allowed to go in to where the Ark of the Covenant was, and that was only one time a year. And although the way to God was blocked, since that's where God, his throne was behind the curtain, behind the veil, it was only a curtain. It wasn't a wall of stone or metal. It was only a curtain. And what that said to the people was, this is going to be temporary. There will not always be a barrier between God and man. The veil was fine twisted linen. And that little, all the details anywhere in scripture are important, but especially in the tabernacle. That word fine is in, in, it's pointing to Jesus' moral excellence. He was absolutely perfect in all his ways. We see the same sort of idea um, 
in the phrase fine flour in F-L-O-U-R for baking um, offerings in Leviticus and refined gold in First Chronicles 28 and refined silver also in First Chronicles. There's an element of, of you know, just the top quality, top shelf excellence going on here. White, the white fine linen points, of course, to his sinless purity. As I mentioned before, the order in which we are given the colors is opposite of the, the curtains, the ceiling curtains. Blue, again, is the color of the sky, and it points to the fact that Jesus came from heaven. Scarlet is the color of blood. It points forward to the cross. And purple is the color of royalty because Jesus is the ultimate king. The white linen reminds us that Jesus was pure. In Hebrews 10, 19 and 20, um, the writer of Hebrews is connecting the dots between what's going on in the tabernacle and our understanding of what Jesus brings to the table here. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. Um, I have a slide for that, for the scripture, so you can see that. Let me, let me read that again because it's so important. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. It's right there in black and white, as clear as day. The veil is Jesus' broken body. And he tells us, the writer of Hebrews tells us, that we have confidence to enter the holy place. Well, first of all, we are priests. But secondly, the reason we have the right to go into the holy place is because of the blood of Jesus, which when every believer crosses over the line to become a believer, we're saying, I trust in you, Jesus, and I thank you for spilling your blood for me. So it's because of his blood that we have access to God in the holy place. But he provided a new and living way through the veil, his flesh. The veil was a physical stop sign. You can't come in here. Only the high priest, and only on one day of the entire year, the Day of Atonement. You cannot come in. That's what the veil said to everybody. 364 days of the year for everybody, and one day, one person was allowed to go in. God gave instructions to the high priest. You can't even come in here without a blood sacrifice. Don't even think of coming without literally Blood on your hands. That pointed forward to the cross where Jesus would be sacrificed for us because there would be a blood sacrifice. And then there's another scripture in Hebrews 9.12. And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. It was that the time for animal sacrifices was over. All of those animal sacrifices were pointing forward to the time when Jesus 
would sacrifice his own body. He would be the perfect lamb of God who would die for the sins of the world. And through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all. We don't need priests to go into the holy place anymore because Jesus is always functioning as the high priest. Not only that, but he's saying, y'all come on in. Got to get there in a minute. There, are, there were cherubim. Um, cherubim is the plural form of cherub. Now, if I say cherub, you're probably thinking either A, your own child, or a little baby angel with little, little wings out of the, their shoulder and, you know, just sitting there with their heads tilted looking so sweet. Maybe a version of Cupid or something. And that's what we think of as cherub. Oh, please don't go there. No, that is not what a cherub was. The cherubim, cherubs, were tall, strong, fearsome angels. And they were, um, they're fiery. And they, uh, they did God's bidding of judici- judicial <laughs> justice. The last time we heard about cherubim, was in Genesis 3.24 when God drove Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden and he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. So we had cherubim in Genesis and now we're seeing them again. When, when the priests would see the cherubim uh, embroidered into the veil, they would be reminded that God is a just God and he knows how to execute justice. And it's scary. There's the fear of the Lord um, would be triggered by seeing representations of cherubim. One of the most staggering aspects of the crucifixion is that when Jesus died, the veil in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom by the unseen hands of the Father top to bottom. Think about that. If we had, let's say the screen was like a veil, how, the only way that a human being would be able to tear it would be from the bottom to the top. The fact that it was ripped from the top to the bottom was an, was an incredible symbolism that this was God doing it. It was heaven reaching down to earth taking the veil out of the way. The way is open to us now to see the Ark of the Covenant, to the meeting place of God. Let me share some observations about the the tearing of the veil because it's an incredibly powerful thing that happens in the Bible. The veil was torn while it was hanging between heaven and earth. And Jesus suffered and died while he was hanging on a cross. The veil was torn from top to bottom. This was God's own hand inflicting judgment for our sins on his son. The veil was torn from the top all the way to the bottom. And this is a signal of the fact that Jesus' work on the cross was absolutely complete He reconciled the world to the Father all by himself. There's nothing left for us to do. And so 
whenever someone thinks, well, I'm really glad that Jesus did what he did kind of to open the door and make it possible for me to do my part, everything he did is complete. There's no room for us to try to add anything to what Jesus did. The veil was torn in the middle of the veil, which when it, when the two pieces came separate, it revealed the mercy seat to everyone. And now everyone has direct access to the Father through what? His flesh, the veil. We have to go through the veil, torn in two, through Jesus to get to the Father. The veil was torn the moment Christ died. There was a big no accident. If there was ever an exclamation point in history, that would be it. Jesus dies and the veil is torn in two. The barrier between God and man was gone because Jesus died. And as soon as that veil was torn, it was changed from a barrier to a gateway. Incredible. Hebrews 6 says, um, this hope, hope in God's goodness that we have is an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. This hope we have is an anchor of the soul. What this is saying is that our hope in the goodness of God, in the sovereignty of God, in the belief that God will make all things work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose, that hope we have, it's like it's tied around our heart and it extends into the holy of holies. It goes through the veil into the Holy of Holies, and it's attached to the throne of God. Um, What an incredible image. When you feel like you are just being beaten up or you're um, being thrown to and fro by winds and waves, if you feel like your life is totally chaotic, it's not true because we are anchored to the throne of God. That's what the scripture seems to indicate. We can trust him. I am anchored to you, Jesus. Praise you. But beyond that, not just being anchored, we also have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, by the fresh and living way that he inaugurated for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. Um, Next slide. For that scripture, please. Thank you. We have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Christ. Confidence. The Greek word is parasea. It's one of my favorite words in the whole Bible because it means fearless um, confidence and, and to be able to just stride right into the throne room of God and go, Abba, Daddy, here I am. And he's not going to say, what are you doing here? Or how did you get in here? I'm with him. I'm with Jesus. <laughs> That's how I got here. But I, he says we can have confidence. We don't have to be afraid of 
what he's going to say or what he's going to think or what he's going to do. We have confidence. If you don't feel that confidence, it's because you don't yet know how very, very good Jesus is. Ask him to show you. Okay, then there's the gate of the courtyard. It's on the east side of the tabernacle compound. Now, the last time we heard of God doing something on the east side of anything was when the cherubim were stationed there with the flaming sword at the Garden of Eden. So that time, when he stationed cherubim at the east side of the Garden of Eden, he was saying, stay out. And now he's providing a gate that says, come in on the east side. I love that. Jesus unfolds the meaning of the gate. In Matthew seven thirteen. he says, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. He says, Enter through the narrow gate. And then he goes on to explain exactly what that means. John ten nine. I am the door, I am the gate. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. He said he was the gate. God could have just left an opening in the curtains, but he didn't. He set up a gate, a doorway, a screen through which people would come, and it all pointed to Jesus being the door. And then there's the brazen altar. The position of the altar just inside the entrance to the court made it as clear as symbology could that the beginning of fellowship with God and man, between God and man, has to begin with sacrifice. That's the first thing people ran into. It was the largest of the tabernacle's furnishings. It's the first thing you'd see when you come through the gate. And it's called the brazen altar or bronze altar to distinguish it from the golden altar where um, that we'll be covering next week, I think. It's also called the altar of burnt offering. This is a huge piece of furniture. There's no way, I, I don't have any scale up there, but it had to, to barbecue, basically, a number of animals throughout the day of, as the sacrificial system was, uh, was working. That was the basis. This, this brazen altar, that was the basis of the Levitical system. The sinner would come to the altar with his victim who was going to die in his place. The fire continually burned all day long because it was never enough. There was never any finishing to the need for sacrifice. The altar was ever smoking, ever bloody, ever open to any Hebrew that wanted to be reconciled to God. It was made from the brass mirrors that the children of Israel scored from the Egyptians when they were leaving Egypt. And they were saying, what do you, remember trick or treat? What do you want to give me? And all of the furnishings for the tabernacle came from the Egyptians. Just the, the fabrics and the, and the jewels and the gold and the silver and just the in, incredible um, mountain of wealth that the children of Israel brought to Moses to furnish, to build and to furnish the tabernacle. That's what, they were poor slaves. They didn't have any of that. But God made sure that they had it for the tabernacle when they left Egypt. 
each of the four corners on the altar had a horn. You can see the, the sticky-outy part on the picture. And a, a horn symbolizes power or strength. The priests would tie some of the larger animals to the horns when they were sacrificing them. And, of course, this is a picture of Jesus being nailed to the cross. Although the nails are not what kept Jesus on the cross. His love and devotion to the Father kept him there. He said, I, hey, I could call angels. I, I could be off of here in just a moment. Um, but that's, he, he wasn't going to go there. He was going to f- follow his orders all the way through. This altar was the only piece of the tabernacle's furniture that was wrapped in purple, the royal color. It was pointing forward to when the king of kings would give himself in sacrifice for us. It was wrapped in purple, and then it was wrapped. The final outside wrapping was the badger skin, which hid the glory of the purple from view. This is an interesting Uh, There's an interesting correlation between the fact that some people are able to see the purple of Jesus, to see him as the king of kings, to see him as royalty, such as the repentant thief on the cross who said, Lord, um, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He saw the purple. The other thief on the other side didn't see it. He just saw the badger coverings symbolically speaking. He just scorned and scoffed at Jesus and died in unbelief. He didn't see the glory of Jesus. Hebrews teaches that we have a better altar. So this altar was pointing forward to Christ. Jesus is the place where the sacrifice was made in his own body for us. The brazen altar was the place where sin was judged and its wages were paid. The veil told of separation because of sin. The altar says that the consequence of sin is death, but that sin has been paid for and sent away. This weekend I was at a conference, um, and I got to lead a small group. And one of the girls in my small group is a baby Christian. And so I said, "Um, so tell me about your time in the Word. And she said, well, when I read the Bible, um, I I pick one verse and and, and just kind of look at that. One verse. Um, Can I suggest you read more than that a day? (laughs) You really, how about one chapter a day? She said, I suppose I could do that. I said, well, tell me, what's that like when you open up the Bible, what, what are you thinking? What are you looking for? She goes, well, right now I'm reading in Hebrews. I'm thinking, you just became a Christian. You're brand new to the Bible, and you're reading Hebrews, which you really have to understand the Old Testament to understand <laughs> Hebrews, but okay. I said, so what do you do? And she said, well, I read the verses, and I ask, what does this mean for me? I said, well, it's really not about you. Um, it's really about Jesus, and you, you, in order to understand what God is saying to us in the Bible, you need to know what is the author saying, what is the context, how does it fit into the paragraph that it's in, how does the paragraph fit into the chapter that it's in, how does the chapter fit into the book that it's in. 
it's not about how does this apply to my life. I was thinking about that in terms of what, what, what's our big takeaway from these three chapters about the tabernacle? That it's all about Jesus. It's not about us. And that's a really good thing because when we focus on Christ, everything else takes its proper place. We, we start to see things in their um, correct size. The things that we think are so big and hairy and bodacious and awful start to shrink when we're focusing on Jesus. It works so much better to make it all about Jesus rather than us. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your amazing gift of your word that tells us about Jesus through the tabernacle. Thank you that we get to live in New Testament times after the Bible has been completed so that we can connect these dots and string them up as this beautiful necklace and understand the glory and the majesty of what we just looked at in the tabernacle this week. Thank you that it all points to Jesus. Lord, we want to glorify you. We want to honor you. We want to praise you and love you and really, really get you. And we know that we can't do that apart from your work of grace in our lives. And so that's what we ask. Open our eyes. Let us see you as you really are. Help us to really appreciate the beauty and glory of the Lord Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.